Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Hello and welcome to American History A to Z. I am Mark McClay and as always I am joined by Malcolm Craig, unfortunately, catastrophically not in person on this occasion. How are things down in Huddersfield, Malcolm? Not bad. Rainy. You may be able to hear very, very heavy rain in the background. There isn't a room in the place where I can record where there isn't rain. However, today we are fully committed, weather notwithstanding, to uh, a quickfire exploration of the letter W in American history. Yeah, I don't know why, but for some reason I'm oddly excited about the letter W. More excited than previous letters. I think it's, yes, one of the most exciting letters in the alphabet. Next to J. Indeed, and that, that, that's these type of insights that listeners tune in. In, tune indeed, in and, and hello to both of our listeners. Yeah. <laughs> right, shall we get cracking then? Yes. We don't, we don't like shall to we, mess about shall on, we draw a, on the, the Z podcast. We draw, shall we draw from the mysterious hat? Indeed, let's go. Uh, do you want to start us off then, Malcolm? The clock is ticking. Okay, the first, the first from the hat is... Dun, da, da, dun, da, da, da. Who would believe it? Okay, this one's for you, Mark. The West Wing. The TV series. Oh, we've got we've gone big, heavy, uh, early doors. Um, the West Wing. Well, I mean, I could I could literally just say the best television show ever made and just leave it there. You would be wrong. Uh, okay, what what is the best television show ever made? That's a difficult to say. Okay, okay. Well, the West the West Wing. I mean, uh, is one of those shows that I think you either adore, which I think the majority of people fall into that camp. Or you find it really annoying, idealistic nonsense, um, and you detest Aaron Sorkin's uh, sexism. But uh, for the most part, the, the I guess the West Wing, as is the case with many people of my generation, helped me sort of fall in love with American politics. And ever since then, American politics has been trying to destroy the love I have for it. Um, but I am holding on just barely. You've never watched an episode of the West Wing, I have, have you? never watched the West Wing. No, no. Well, then, then I feel like you're not qual- you're not qualified to comment, and uh, we'll just we'll leave it there because I could literally do the entire half an hour on the West Wing. Okay, right. <laughs> um, there, I mean, there is a, a podcast that has done about four years of it, so I'll I'll leave it to them at this point. Good. Okay, right. Oh, next one out. Uh, this reminds me of the course that started this very podcast, the War of eighteen twelve. Oh, the War of eighteen twelve. The war that in the kind of glib statement that. The United States think they won, Canada thinks they won, and Britain didn't even know it was fighting. So it is, Indeed. I mean, but it's frequently described, amongst historians of the US, US history and Atlantic history and history more broadly, it's a very well-known event, but it is kind of one of those forgotten major conflicts. And it's, you know, described you know, it's in the United States sometimes as the kind of the second American war for independence against mm-hmm. uh, the United Kingdom. Uh, you know, Canada 
a British colony at this point is involved in it as well. It involves Native Americans on both sides. And it's a complex, fascinating uh, conflict. Or one might call it a cluster F. Um. Yes, we might, (laughs) uh, but I'm not going to. And from the United States side, it kind of cuts to the heart of a lot of what the emerging new young United States is about. Because the main slogan of the war is free trade and sailors' rights. And a lot of it comes about because of the impressment of American sailors on the high seas by the Royal Navy and about free trade uh, during the Napoleonic, the late stages of the Napoleonic Wars and everything. So, you know, the War of 1812 gives us, you know, a lot. The American National Anthem. Yeah, I was just about to say, Francis Scott Key at the Battle of Baltimore, isn't it? Mm. Which is not long after the British, of course, have burned down the White House, which... Is one of history's more hilarious ones. Rocket, rockets went uh, glare and all that kind of thing. To be, yeah. to be fair, the United States Armed Forces had burned down York, which is now Toronto. I'm not saying either side was in the right here, but two wrongs don't make a right. It was a bit tit for tat. Yeah, and of course, the one last thing of the, to say on the War of 1812, oh. the reason that we should all hate that war is the fact that it bequeathed Andrew Jackson as a national hero. Hero, it and, did. Uh, from, Battle of New Orleans, just as the war has ended. Yeah, yeah. Right. Oh, also, it was a terrible final thing. It was a terrible name of the war. It went on until eighteen fourteen. Why did they just call it the War of eighteen twelve? Well, no, so, well, so the well the the peace treaty was in eighteen fourteen, but the Battle of New Orleans was in eighteen fifteen, because it yeah. took a while for the news to reach Andrew yeah. Jackson. So an, an even worse name for the war then. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, let's move on. Next, da 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 da. The Works Progress Administration or WPA. Yes, um, this is about as. I think if if you could imagine something that the American government would never do, um, something that would smack of socialism, then the Works Progress Administration is probably it. Um, you know, it's the 1930s, in the height of Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal, and um, I, I, the height of the, a quarter of Americans are unemployed, and despite early attempts to solve that, they a lot of them remain unemployed, and so... They create a government agency called the Works Progress Administration, at one point also called the Works Projects Administration, because basically Franklin Roosevelt liked to make things really annoying for future historians. Um, And basically over its eight-year life, I think it ran from 1935 to 1943, it employed 8.5 million people, um, Americans, um, almost all men, Building public roads and and public buildings. And there's lots of famous photographs um, of, of things uh, to do with the Work Progress Administration. And basically, they, they paid them less than you would get paid in the private sector so that it wasn't in direct comp- competition, but at least people were getting paid and not starving, which was a happy thing. And then World War Two came along and prosperity returned and you didn't need the Work Progress Administration anymore. Not starving is always very good. And one of the many uh, alphabet agencies of mm-hmm. the New Deal. We have all these three-letter acronyms from the New Deal, the, the WPA, the NRA, the CCC, there's so many of them. But anyway, yeah, so great, that's the WPA. Next. Okay, uh, let's see, what have we got here for you? Victoria Woodhull. Ah, oh, Victoria Woodhull, one of my favourite Americans from the 19th century. Well, she let, I mean, she's you know living into the 20th century. I think she yeah. dies in 1927 or something like that. Yeah, just out of interest, is she one of your favourite Americans because she supports the eugenics movement? No, but <laughs> from a point of view of her being a genuinely interesting and important figure who's involved in so much stuff 
that's going on over a quite a long period of time. First woman presidential candidate uh, for the Equal Rights Party, and her running mate, none other than Frederick Douglass. You know, there you go, uh, the mm -hmm. great the great abolitionist. I mean, she was actually one of the arguments is that she was too young. She wasn't thirty five by the time she won. She she wouldn't have been allowed, and she was never taken seriously as a. Uh, as a candidate, but she's the first woman presidential candidate, the first woman to run a brokerage firm on Wall Street, which is another W. Uh, she was also at one point in her life a magnetic healer, following the ideas of Anton Mesmer and all that kind of stuff. She was a feminist, a labour rights activist, but had a complicated relationship with a lot of kind of complicated ideas to do with, you know, science and race and eugenics and all these things, like many people uh, in this era had, especially many kind of progressive uh, thinkers. Uh, one thing I always remember her for is the Beecher-Tilton scandal. So the Beecher-Tilton scandal, very, very briefly, Henry Ward Beecher was a major preacher uh, of the time in Brooklyn. And he preached against uh, Victoria Woodhill's ideas of free love, that women should be able to love and marry whomever they wish. It's not 1960s free love. Don't get confused with that. Uh, but uh, Woodhull finds out that Beecher has been having an affair uh, with one of his parishioners. And she publishes this story in her paper that she runs with her sister, Woodhull and Claflin's Weekly. And this creates a massive scandal. So in, this is in 1875. On one hand, what Woodhull is saying in the paper is seen as, as scandalous and obscene. She's charged with obscenity, which brings her presidential uh, run to a, a shuddering halt. But on the other hand, it exposes uh, Henry Ward Beecher as a bit of a hypocrite. Because he's having a go at Victoria Woodhull and her fellow kind of uh, first wave feminists uh, for their views, while actually engaging in this massively hypocritical adultery at this point in time. It is a lovely story. I'm gutted. I had I I, I basically wanted to make the free love point, but you stole it away from me. So we better move on uh, to something else. I feel like we've covered Victoria Woodhull yeah. rather well there. Okay. Next up, what do we have? Uh, we have what is this? Wallace. Whichever. I'm assuming we're not talking about William Wallace. Well, I, actually, I was going to, and I'll, I'll tell you why. Like, because we could, because we could have talked about George Wallace, uh, Henry Wallace, um, uh, and even Lorleen Wallace had we wanted to. Uh -huh. But no, I, I am going to talk about uh, William Wallace um, because it plays into my favorite anecdote. Um, uh, one of my favorite anecdote about America. Um, which is when I, when I was doing a Scottish history module when I was an undergraduate, I had to research William Wallace as a as a figure in sort of how in popular culture. Um, and one of the things I came across, and I wish I could find this stat again, I haven't been able to find it, so I'm almost beginning to believe I imagined it. But I will say I did read it once that it, it, essentially before Braveheart came out, five million Americans declared themselves to have Scottish heritage. After Braveheart came out, 20 million Americans claimed to have Scottish heritage. So there you go, the power of Hollywood um, and of painting your face on a Scottish flag and, and uh, you know, shouting and pointing with a big stick. That that statistic is it's tempting, but it, I don't know, it strikes me as one of those potentially apocryphal statistics. I know, I, I did read it somewhere when I was doing my undergrad and it was in my presentation and I wasn't pulled up for it being inaccurate so hopefully 
that means it's true. I'm going to choose to believe it's true. Okay, let's let's believe it's true. I've told I've told it so many times now. The American Scottish community. There we go. Yeah. What's up next? Hey, I thought you wanted to lavish some praise on George Wallace. No, I'd rather not move on. (laughs) Hey, okay. Hmm. Okay, the weather underground. So the weather underground. A. And I'm doing air quotes here, domestic terrorist organisation. Well, he did engage in acts of terror. So they're a kind of interesting outgrowth of the the 1960s counterculture and anti-Vietnam war activism and student activism and all that kind of thing. Founded in the late 60s uh, in Ann Arbor uh, in Michigan, at the University of Michigan's campus. Uh, somewhere we are very familiar with, Mark. Hard to imagine something so violent coming out, coming out of something so beautiful. It's the lovely city <laughs> of Ann Arbor. Uh, and it took they took the name from uh, some you know, Bob Dylan lyrics. You, know, you don't need a weatherman to know, know which way the wind blows. Uh, so they were kind of a kind of left wing, radically anti Vietnam, uh, anti capitalist in many ways. Tried to ally themselves with radical African American movements, uh, and ended up kind of being this almost the kind of like the number one domestic terrorist organization in the United States from the kind of late 70s into the early 70s when basically the end of the Vietnam War undercut their kind of entire raison d'etre. But they did engage in kind of like, you know, bombing campaigns and some of them are still around. Some members of the the Weather Underground are still around. Yeah, I mean, it was famously, it famously almost undermined uh, Barack Obama's 2008 campaign because he had had an association with Bill Ayers, who was one of the the Weather Underground. Yeah, I mean, they're interesting. Um, I mean, a lot of their bombings, they try to warn in advance so that people aren't killed, but people do get killed. Um, And... Overall, I mean, while you can sort of understand the the sheer frustration at what was going on in Vietnam, they 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 served to tarnish the wider Vietnam movement as a violent movement, as a as an anti-war movement, as a violent movement, and it's it's one of the things that I would argue doesn't do the cause any any good. Oh no, I mean, whatsoever. in many ways they were deeply counterproductive. But it's interesting yeah. they they frequently targeted things like banks. Yeah. And yeah. all that kind of thing, as as their targets for you know attacking the you know the military industrial and, capitalist complex yeah. and so univer- universities that were receiving money from mm. arms companies and things like that. So so yeah, no, I mean they're they're an interesting and, and radical outgrowth of of as you said the counterculture and the anti Vietnam War movement, um, very much a product of that time of chaos which we're going up which we're going to be discussing in the. On the on the big boy podcast that we're yes. doing later, <laughs> right? What do we ha- what do we have up next? Ah, oh, brilliant! This is something I think we can both talk about. The Wizard of Oz. I'm off to see. No, I won't do that. Um, Go yeah, on. No, no. <laughs> nobody, but nobody wants that, Malcolm. Yeah, the Wizard of Oz. You know, it was it was interesting because when I when I grew up, I only ever seen the cartoon version. Did Disney do a version of it? That I must be that, the one I've I seen. I think that was Return to Oz. Return to Oz, yeah. So that was the only one I ever saw. Um, the whereas the the film itself, which is from the late nineteen thirties, and it was it was, it was be, beaten to the best picture by Gone with the Wind. I think it was nineteen thirty nine, um, and it is the most apparently people have measured it. It's the most seen film in history because it was it came on it was re shown on american tv from the 1950s to 1970s so many times and people watched tv so much at that point with so little choice in channels that they reckon it's the most seen movie in history um 
apparently there is I remember I, I used to work with someone who who taught a, a lecture on the Gilded Age and they would use um, the Wizard of Oz because apparently the Wizard of Oz is supposedly based on Gilded Age and there are numerous theories that have been debunked and people still argue over it um, and and yeah the, the uh, apparently William Jennings Bryan is a cowardly lion don't ask me why well so there's an interesting thing about now this actually I think relates more to L. Frank Baum's original book the book yeah than yeah the film uh, the, there is some scholars have argued and you, as as you said there's been a lot of you know debunking counter debunking argue, the still argument that it it's about populism it's about bimetallism, the idea of free silver, the gold standard, all that thing. Follow the yellow brick road to the Emerald City and all that kind of thing. Criticism of urbanism. There's all sorts of different interpretations that have been placed on it. But yeah, I mean, the book and the... I mean, there's kind of slight differences between the... Significant differences between the book and the film in those terms. But I remember watching the, you know, the film as a kid. You know, and that moment when it turns into Technicolor is let's set aside the historical stuff. That moment when it turns into Technicolor is an amazing cinematic moment. It's still brilliant. Uh, I mean, there's lots of problems with the film. Uh, but Also, was, yeah. I, I'm sure I remember reading up in the... Either they were feeding Judy Garland drugs or stopping her from eating a certain amount so she would be skinny enough to play the role. And I think she was mentally affected by it for the rest of her life. Like There was a lot of troubling things behind the scenes yeah, I mean, going Judy, on. I mean, uh, Judy Garland was, uh, yeah, a very, a very troubled figure. I mean, there's the new uh, biopic uh, that's just come out with, with Venny Zellweger playing her right almost at the end of her life, the kind of shows in, in London, and she's struggling with, you know, with addiction, the legacies of, you know, abuse of various kinds, of the way she's been treated by kind of men in her life and all that kind of thing. So she was a, you know, I mean, she was a huge, huge star and, yeah, someone that was all frequently treated very, very badly and had a really tough life, despite the stardom and all the things associated with it. Yeah, yeah. Right, let's move on from that. We've managed to sour the Wizard of Oz for the audience. Okay, so the next one, I feel like this is a heavy hit in W. I feel like this is a big W to go in. Okay. W- Watergate. Oh, Watergate. Well, that's a kind of an interesting one that we should be doing this now because there's a, because of the current impeachment hearings to do with President Donald J. Trump, uh, that a lot of people are trying to hark back to Watergate if there are any lessons that we can take from Watergate. And I think the answer is no, because it's a completely different context. You're dealing with different, you know, completely different people. I mean, for one point, Nixon didn't just blurt out all the stuff that he'd done and then compound it. Well, by, technically, know, he did it while he was recording it was himself. Record, no, no. <laughs> so, we're, we're talking about in the public, in a yeah, public forum. Yeah. Yes, I mean, there's the rec- there's the tape recordings, but you know, Nixon didn't go on national television and and demand further break-ins, you know, to the to the Democratic National, you know, co- you know, uh, committees, you know, headquarters. He didn't do that. Whereas that's almost exactly. What you're, so I'm not sure there's any kind of like lessons we can really take from Trump, I, other than I, some presidents are going to be corrupt. Yeah. Well, my my view on it, um, and, and I in this podcast I generally try not to reveal my political leanings and stuff, but I have always from the beginning thought that from the very 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 beginning of his presidency, even maybe going back to his campaign that Donald Trump is a shit Nixon tribute act like genuinely 
Because, I mean, he his favourite president, I'm convinced, was Richard Nixon. I mean, they, there's the famous letter that Nixon writes yes, to Trump. Yeah, yeah. And, and Trump does so many things, and I can't pick them off the top of my head just now, which are so Nixonian, only Trumpified. But they're, they are, vet, he's borrowed. And obviously, you've also got the shady characters that, that, that Nixon was affiliated with, that, you know, still kick it, that helped Trump's rise and everything. Roger, Roger Ailes, and what was the... Not just um oh who's the really really shady one the love the one that loves to talk about how shady is I'm Paul sure Manafort he... which one of them no no, so no. oh no the one oh god I can't believe he's gone at my head he was probably arrested three years ago and that's why I've forgotten it um but yeah I but, can't um, remember him yeah, anyway the, back to Oliver, what I get you know John Oliver said kind of that the uh, I mean what a couple of years ago he referred to what was going on in the Trump administration as dumb Watergate yeah. Yeah. And it is, I mean, that's the thing, you know, there were people associated, I mean, a lot of the people associated with Watergate were actually, they were crooks, but they were clever. The, the trouble is, there's not a lot of cleverness with mm-hmm. what's going on just now. It's just kind of dumb. Yeah. yeah. And it was, I mean, well, the thing about pa- Watergate was, I think as well, it was an era of paranoia and distrust. Uh, the Vietnam War was sort of corrupting almost, you know, the body politic at large and... Vietnam is so connected to why Watergate happens in the first place because Nixon actually sets up the whole plumbers group to the the lead they end up you know leading the break and he sets them up because the New York Times reveals that he's expanded the bombings into Cambodia and they they the New York Times found this out through a leak in the White House so you know and then you obviously you've got the Daniel Ellsberg link and everything but yeah we could go on about Watergate for a long time but yeah the the connection you know in in the modern day. There is no similar crisis to the Vietnam War. Yeah. Um, that that you know, so the need for this skullduggery to be going on is just so much less. And, but um, one of the things, I mean, one of the interesting things about Watergate is this is the stuff that we still don't know. I mean, at the heart of it, about why exactly all. I mean, aside from like you know paranoia and electioneering and everything, there's things about kind of like why certain things happen that we still don't know. Uh, I mean, you know, Luke Nichter, who's one of the editors of the, the Nixon tapes, has talked about this. You know, we're still finding out more about Watergate. I know it's fascinating. Well, I think we'll discuss it at greater length when we when we come on to the penultimate episode of the LBJ's America series. So we better save some discussion for there. Yes. Okay, so we've had Watergate. How much time have we got left? We've got a good ten minutes. Have we? That's incredible. Mm. Right. Okay. Let's think about westerns. Right, so I never wa- I have watched one western through from start to finish. It was Stagecoach, also made in nineteen thirty nine, I believe. It's uh, a good one, though. Yeah, it was. It was good. Um, but I want to talk about this from a different angle. Oh. Um, now I had always heard that Stalin, Joseph Stalin, liked a western, and I, and I was reading about this recently. And it turns out Joseph Stalin did like a Western. Stalin liked a lot of American movies. He liked Westerns. But he hated, he despised the greatest of all the Western stars, at least in terms of name recognition, John Wayne. Um, because John Wayne was such a fervent anti-communist as well as other n- n- yeah, things. Um, but John, to the to the point where Stalin, and one of his biographers, one of Wayne's biographers argued this in the early 2000s, and it appears to be corroborated that Stalin tried to have John Wayne assassinated. Um and Wayne had to sort of move his family, um, within a, a like around a 
they have his house fortress and stuff like that. And this order, this sort of bounty on Wayne's head remained until Stalin was was what died and was it 1953 1954 yeah. 53 uh, and Khrushchev, Khrushchev rescinded it apparently because he was a John Wayne fan so uh there we go I've not heard that about Stalin uh trying to get John Wayne assassinated that yeah that is certainly an amusing uh anecdote westerns they're I think a genuine the western is a genuinely American art form in terms of you know novels, so coming from you know the the originations of the you know, the Western novel, the likes of Zane Grey, the most famous Western novelist, and all that kind of thing, into the the cinema of John Wayne, and then into the nineteen fifties and sixties, and the development of the Western is is it has parallels in other you know national cinemas, but the Western is a very American thing, and it's the way that the Western, like all art, reflects the times. You know, the the westerns of the nineteen thirties are in the midst of depression, trying to give some kind of like hope and kind of giddy up and get going and look how great as a nation you know make America great again, uh, kind of thing. Uh, there, as opposed to you get into the darker years of the nineteen sixties and especially into the nineteen seventies, you start getting much darker westerns uh, in the you know the nineteen seventies that are essentially representations of Vietnam. You know, so there's there's a lot of you know the ways in which westerns have been used to represent America, and then you get the kind of the elegiac, you know, deconstructionist westerns like Unforgiven, you know, Clint Eastwood's great, you know, di- directorial achievement. Aside from what you think about Eastwood as a man, I think Unforgiven is possibly the best western of all time because it deconstructs so many of the ideas about what the western is about and about greatness and about the glory in air quotes of the drive west and all that kind of stuff so yes good stuff Uh, now I said the last one I said was a big W this feels like an even bigger bigger W World War 1 or 2 you can choose which way to go World War 1 or 2 in a context to do with America of course in the context to do with the United States if you want to have a think, I've got something I can, I Go. can talk about. Yes. Yeah, so, um, World War Two. So, and teaching the Vietnam War has actually made me think that World War Two is the great exception in American history. Because I used to think that the Vietnam War was the exception where there was this sort of questionable war where they weren't really sure why they were there. Not everybody supported it. You know, the veterans came home and everything wasn't great. And I used to think that sort of was akin to the Vietnam War. The more I teach it, I actually think what happens in World War Two is the great exception, where there is just clear motives. We are there to defeat Nazism and Japanese militarism. And then when they get home, the veterans are treated about as well as you can possibly treat it. The GI Bill mm-hmm. catapults, catapults at least most white straight um, men who fought in the World War Two into the middle class. And they are celebrated. Um, and if you look back, World War One is nothing like World War Two. Americans hate World War One when they think about it in the nineteen twenties and thirties. Merchants of uh, death, all that yeah, business. Exactly. You know, we got into the war just to make people, you know, industrialists rich. Um, and there was obviously disputes over the, the, you know, the wars in the Philippines, the Spanish-American War. The, you know, it wasn't like everybody loved the Korean War e- either. It pretty much cost Truman his popularity. 
Um, and the war since Vietnam, maybe an exception is the Gulf War under George Bush, um, the first Gulf War, but even that was so short and there was a huge debate over it before they went there. So I think World War II is the exception, the exceptional war in American history in terms of its clarity of purpose and in terms of how it is, how it's remembered in American society as the quote, the good war. Right, I'd like to talk about plastics. Okay, this is a so, sideways move. Okay, sideways, so what, so what we often think, oh yeah, Malcolm's going to talk about, oh, World War II leads to the Cold War, blah, blah, blah. No, I'm going to talk about the modern American synthetics industry. Uh, because when World War II breaks out, the United States is cut off from major sources of supply, supply of key materials. So something like rubber, which isn't grown in the United States. <laughs> you have to import it from you know South Asia, Southeast Asia, various other places. And we always think, when we think of World War II, we think of the huge projects, the Manhattan Project, all of that kind of thing, the big kind of like, you know, the creation of this vast amounts of material producing tens of thousands of tanks of aircraft, all that kind of thing. But one thing that's often forgotten in amongst these other big defence projects are things which were perhaps even more vital to the war effort and the creation of modern synthetic materials and the creation of synthetic rubber that could take the place of actual rubber in tyres, in components for machines, all of these kind of things. And there is a huge amounts of money and industrial capacity are thrown at perfecting synthetic materials. So you get rubber, and then you get all these other things uh, that come out of it. Uh, the things we associate with, you know, it leads into you know, nylon, rayon, all of these kind of things uh, end up coming out of the synthetics industry and the developments that take place in World War II. So the modern plastics industry is not entirely rooted in World War II, but in the United States, it gives the modern synthetics and plastics industry a real boost. Interesting. There we go. So World War Two caused climate change then? World War Two. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Okay. Let's move on. That was interesting. Okay. And so we've had World War One. That was World War One or Two. We mentioned both, which I think is uh, is pretty good. Boxy's ticked. Yep. What about the war on drugs? Okay, so... We're back to Nixon again. No, I'm going to go earlier. Oh. Um, and sort of look at the roots of when drugs first started getting demonised, actually, which is really happens in the, the 1930s. I mean, obviously, one drug was exceptionally demonised before that in terms of alcohol, and then prohibition was passed. But prohibition creates this Bureau of Narcotics, um, and it, it makes it a big deal, because it's sort of to... Uh, bigger of narcotics, alcohol and tobacco, I think it's called. And it's to regulate prohibition, one of its key tasks. And so when prohibition is ended in 1933, yeah, 1933 by Franklin Roosevelt, the people that worked there are left with, okay, well, what the hell do we do now? And one of the persons, people that worked there was a guy called Harry Anslinger, who was this very ambitious um, agent who wanted to, to find a cause to latch onto. And what does he find as his cause? Marijuana. Um and he in uh, in with the help of the William Randolph Hearst papers leads this big anti marijuana campaign, um which is all about demonising it by associating it with Mexicans and also by associating it with African Americans, um for example like he he talks about marijuana as leading black people to play the devil's music. Um, and all these kind of things, and he he whips up such such a such a storm about it um, that Roosevelt, who's dealing with other things, lets him 
push through this marijuana tax act, which sounds really kind of negligible, but essentially it was one of those things whereby if you, you know, it was a catch-22. If you revealed that you had marijuana to be taxed, then the federal government could seize it type thing. And so that's where you see the sort of first concerted effort. Um, well, not the first concerted effort. Drugs had been outlawed before then, but to really demonise a, a group of people by associating them with a drug, as would happen in the 60s, 70s and uh, 80s and onwards to this present day. And we have films in the 1930s like Reefer Madness. I've never watched that one, I have to admit. Watch <laughs> uh, I just like to add one final thing, uh, and this goes into the 19, late 1970s and 1980s, is the way that the war on drugs, the modern war on drugs launched by Nixon, leads to the militarization of American policing. I mean, there are great scholars out there like Donna March who have done brilliant work on this and how the creation of SWAT teams and what we see now is this hyper-militarized, almost paramilitary uh, policing in the United States using military weapons and all that kind of thing is in many ways a direct consequence of the war on drugs and in many ways was driven by uh, the lead of Los Angeles and the LAPD yeah. and their creation of SWAT teams and the way they dealt with, and which was primarily targeted against African-Americans yeah. uh, in that period. And then in 1992, you'd have the LA riots, which partially grew out of frustrations with yep. with those tactics. But yeah, I mean, it was, it was really probably Reagan. I mean, Nixon starts the war on drugs, but doesn't really do anything. Um, um, and then it's in the 1980s that you see the the scale over cocaine and everything but yeah, I don't know if the the listener heard that but the alarm went in the middle of that answer so we shall leave it there for today which means I do not get to rant about Woodrow Wilson but I'm sure I've done it on previous podcasts so um, that is fine Um, that was fun W W lived up to the hype W's done, Cool. wonderful see you in a month, goodbye (laughs) 